uh, reading this week about a, a man named Steve Linscott. Around the year of 1980, he was charged and convicted with the rape and murder of his neighbor. After 12 years of constantly declaring his innocence, after 12 years of, of prison time and countless appeals, Mr. Linscott was finally declared innocent. In his book, as he was detailing this account, a question was asked to him, Steve, how do you remain faithful to God? As, as a man of faith, during this 12 years, how did you remain hopeful and, and how did you remain faithful to God? How did you remain a man of faith in the midst of that horrific experience? And here's his response. He said, I've come to realize that we cannot judge God's purposes, nor where he places us, nor why he chooses one path for our lives over another, but God has a plan, a perfect plan. After 12 years of false accusation, false imprisonment, his reputation dragged through the mud, Steve Linscott at the end of it says, hey, I hated it. But God used it. Have you ever struggled with fairness in life? False accusations. Being wrongly accused. How do you handle it? Or maybe it's never happened to you, but you worry about the day it will. And you wonder, man, if I was Steve Linscott, would I be faithful? Would I be able to continue to trust God in the midst of it? And if you're worried about it, maybe your question is, how, how did he do it? How should I? You know, the Bible's filled with examples of people being wrongly accused or falsely imprisoned. Maybe we could talk about Joseph. Remember that story? Maybe you know it from Sunday School or Andrew Lloyd Webber's show with his Technicolor dream coat. Joseph was sold to slavery by his jealous brothers. He was falsely accused by his boss's wife and left in prison for things he didn't do. Years later, here's his frame of mind. Here's what kept Joseph going. He said this, as for you, talking to his brothers, he said, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Man, how did Joseph do it? What was his frame of mind? Joseph seemed to have this mentality of, hey, you might be doing something evil to me, but God's going to use it. How about King David? Before he was King David, David was this young man who was pursued by King Saul, a jealous king. Later in King David's life, after he became the greatest king of all of Israel... One of his sons pursued him, chased him out of town. What was going through King David's head? 
We get a hint of it in Psalm 109, one of his psalms. Listen to what he said. He said, O God of my praise, do not be silent. For they have opened the wicked and deceitful mouth against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without cause. In return for my love, they act as my accusers, but I'm in prayer. Thus, they have repaid me evil for good and hatred for my love. Anyone ever feel that way? I'm doing my best to reflect Jesus. It seems like all I get back are false accusations, anger, and hatred. Now, how did King David make it through? What does he know that we don't? We get a hint of his frame of mind at the very end of this psalm. Look at what he said. Same psalm. King David finished it this way. With my mouth, I will give thanks abundantly to the Lord. And in the midst of many, I will praise him. For he stands at the right hand of the needy to save him from those who judge his soul. How's King David go on? God's going to handle it. God's going to take care of me. How about one more? Daniel. Jealous government officials tricked the king into signing this law that you can't pray to God knowing that Daniel won't follow it. Daniel gets thrown into a den of hungry lions. God sends an angel to the Lord to keep him safe. Next day, king gets up. Looks in the lion's den, calls out to Daniel. Daniel's like, yo, still good. Remember the end of that story. Daniel gets taken out. All those government officials get thrown in. They don't even hit the ground before those lions get them. And then listen to the words of the king. Says, I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are, to be, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. His dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. And the Bible seems to be filled with example of people falsely accused mistreated. Yet many times these people have been able to be faithful to God in the midst of it and even used by God because of it. How'd they do it? What do they know that we don't? What can we learn from them? I think that's what I've appreciated about this last little bit of Acts. Because if there's another person who we could say joins that list of people who have been mistreated by the world, false accusations, falsely imprisoned, wrongly treated, it would be Paul. In fact, I think if there's a poster boy for it, it would be Paul. If you have your Bibles, you can join me in Acts chapter 24. Namely, Acts chapter 25. Some of you are worried, oh no, same sermon twice in a row. <laughs> no, sorry to worry you. Acts chapter 25, 
This is for five or six chapters now, we've been following along struggles of Paul. Paul's known he was going to have difficulty in Jerusalem, yet he went. His Christian friend said, Paul, don't go. Paul, don't go. God doesn't want you to struggle. God doesn't want you to suffer. He doesn't want you to be mistreated. Paul's like, well, evidently he does. He goes to Jerusalem. He's not there more. He's not there two weeks. Right in the temple, beat up, had to be saved by Roman soldiers. Bleeding. Paul said, no, 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 let me talk to him. He talks to the people. They freak out again. Has to be rescued again by Roman soldiers. He gets falsely accused. There's this kangaroo court. Paul defends himself, has to be saved again by the Roman soldiers, goes to Caesarea, gets falsely accused again, and then kept in house arrest for two years. Two years because of a corrupt government official. I mean, if you want to talk about someone who has been mistreated by the world, it would be Paul. And he's still not done. We pick up the story now. In fact, we're going to start the last verse of Acts chapter 24. Because Paul's continuing on this path. False accusation, mistreatment of the world. Yet Paul continues on. I think it's important that we recognize that truth. Acts chapter 24, verse 27 says this, but after two years had passed, right after two years of being in house arrest, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. Wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So the old governor's out, the new governor's in, Governor Festus, a savvy politician who tends to focus on self-preservation over justice and self-promotion over truth. Standard politics stuff, Right? Look what happens now. New governor into town. Maybe something will change. Finally, right? Look at chapter 25, verse 1. Festus then, having arrived in the province, three days later went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. He doesn't waste any time. He moves into the capital and says, okay, I'm going to go talk to the Jewish leaders. Verse 2. And chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul. They might have him brought to Jerusalem, setting an ambush to kill him on the way. Let me pause a minute. These Jewish leaders, man, they, there's a new governor. They have not let go of this thing with Paul. You remember that whole plan of Paul? It wasn't long ago. Put your thumb in Acts chapter 25. Flip over. It's just a page in my Bible, Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23, verse 12. Let me remind you of this plan. Verse 12, when it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy, bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Right? Mind you, that's two years ago. These guys are hungry and thirsty at this point, right? There were more than 40 who formed this plot. They came to the chief priests, to the elders, and said, we have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you. 
Just get him on the road. We'll take care of the rest. As though you're uh, going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near this place. Big biblical butt right there, verse 16. Just when we think, Paul's cooked. But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul, you remember the rest of the story, went to the commander, the commander got him to Caesarea. That's where he was tried and met previous governor Felix. It's been two years. These 40 people that committed to not eat nor drink, most people believe they probably bought their way out of their oath. There was a nice, easy, expensive way to do that, so they weren't still hungry. But they never forgot. This new governor comes in, those religious leaders are like, come on. Bring him. We want a piece of him. We want to please. And it's that, look what it says, verse 3. They're requesting a concession against Paul. I looked up that word concession. It's from the Greek work, or word charis. Word used for grace. It's used to determine something, unmerited favor, something that I, we can't attain on our own. It's something that an inferior asks a superior to give them. Hey, we recognize you're the one in power. We're asking. Unmerited grace. Something we don't deserve. Can you give us a favor? I was struck by that word because charis is that same word that's used to describe the gift of God, of salvation. Same word. Unmerited favor. Something that we can't attain on our own. Listen to how it's used in scripture, John 1, 16 and 17. For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace, charis upon charis. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus. We not only receive grace from Jesus, grace upon grace, but we can understand it. The power of it, the magnitude of it. Because of Jesus, look what Paul said about grace, charis, Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace, charis, unmerited favor. Something we can't attain on our own. Something an inferior has to be dependent on a superior to give. Oops, sorry, let's go back. Sorry, Scott, my fault. Gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Again, grace comes through Jesus. Look what Paul says in Ephesians. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Charis. His favor. His concession. I was thinking this week, these Roman leaders have rejected the charis, the concession, the favor, the grace of God more times than not. They're convinced we can earn our way. We don't need grace. We're children of Abraham. We're religious leaders. We don't need that. We're content in our position. They've rejected the grace of God, but they're pursuing the grace of man. Do you see that in here? 
The very leaders who reject the grace of God are more than happy to sit and welcome the favor of man. You want to understand the animosity between the religious leaders and Paul? That's it. They're more concerned with their power on earth, their position in their kingdom. They're more concerned about his kingdom, their kingdom on earth and his kingdom in heaven. I was just sitting here right there saying, man, these guys reject the grace of God for the favor of man. And I began to wonder, I wonder if that's something I do in my life. How about you? Have you ever rejected the forgiveness and grace of God? But are overwhelmingly happy to receive the favor of man. While you're thinking about it, let's get back to our text. The new governor isn't in power long. Three days later, goes to Jerusalem. Chief priest said, hey, we don't care about the favor of God. We want your favor, Festus. They want to set up this ambush, their same foolish plan, right? God thwarted it two years ago, but I'm sure that same foolish plan, it'll work this time. I mean, they're, they're small minds. They just don't get what God is doing. Look at verse four. So they're saying, hey, Festus, bring Paul down. We're tired of him being in Caesarea. Let him be tried here. Bring him down. Verse four, Festus answered that Paul is being kept in custody of Caesarea, that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go there with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. The Jewish leaders after three days say, hey, Festus, bring him down here. We'll try him. Wink, wink. Got this group of people set to kill him on the road. Festus says, no, I'd rather, he's already up at my house. I'm going home. Let's just try him up there. You guys come see me. God's people throughout time have been rolling their eyes at this point. It's been over two years. Paul has not made any progress The same people are coming in to make the same accusations. They're going to the exact same court, to the exact same place. They've kicked this can down the road two years. I mean, everyone's got to be rolling their eyes again, and that's what brings us to the first point. There is another trial. I mean, Paul's got to be dying by now. How long, how many times do I have to go through this? We have another trial. After everything I've been through, another one. We've accomplished nothing. Verse 6, and you get an idea of how this trial is going to go, right? Look what Paul says, in, or uh, Luke says in verse 6. He says, after he had spent, talking about Festus, the governor, after he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea, and on the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. Luke says, hey, by the way, before court, Festus, the new governor, eight to ten days with those Jewish leaders being wined and dined. How fair a court system do you think this is going to be? I mean, Luke is setting this up. Paul's doomed. You have this new governor coming in with a reputation to protect himself, to propel himself forward. He spends eight to ten days with his Jewish leaders who were hell-bent on getting Paul off of this earth. After ten days of being wined and dined, now court's going to start. 
And we're supposed to be entering into this thinking, oh no, Paul's done. Verse 7. After Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious accusations against him, which they could not prove. You remember those serious charges? Those serious charges, what they, serious charges of phrase means heavy accusations, capital offenses. These are things that they're saying he is worthy of death. And Luke's just summarizing them here. Because we went into great detail last week, just in case you weren't here last week or have memories like mine and forget them, flip over to Acts chapter 24. Let's just remember what they're saying about Paul. Acts chapter 24. Here's what they said. We have found this man to be a real pest. Like, not just someone that just gets in the way. That term pest means he is a virus. He is a plague. He needs to be eradicated. He needs to be removed. Why? He stirs up dissension among the Jews. He's a ringleader of these rabble-rousers. Like, hey, he's a threat to Rome. And not only a threat to Rome, look at verse 6, he even tried to desecrate the temple. He's not only a threat to Rome, he's a threat to the Jews. He's against both of us. We both need to come against this guy. He needs to be eradicated, removed. He needs to be killed because he's a threat to everything that both of us have. And look at the governor's heart, verse 9. Festus wishing to do the Jews a favor. There's that word, charis wishing to give them something they can't achieve on their own. Man, they have been after Paul for more than two years. He's a Roman citizen. He's safe within the Roman system. He wants to give them a favor. He wants to give them grace. He wants to give them something they can't achieve on their own. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, are, we willing to, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? we read that, we're like, Paul, don't do it. We know the plan. I suspect Paul knows the plan. Paul is the one who heard it from his nephew. As soon as I leave Caesarea, I'm dead. Just when you think Paul's goose is cooked, we get this again, big biblical but right there, verse 10. But just when you think those biblical buts, they're important because they change direction. Just when you think Paul's done. Look at Paul's response. Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I've done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. In other words, Paul's like, hey, I'm here right now. You're here right now. The Jewish leaders, the accusers are here right now. Let's do this now. If I'm guilty of something, kill me. If I'm not guilty of something, free me. That's what Paul's saying. Why go, why go do another trial? We've been down this road a gazillion times. Governor, you're here. I'm here. They're here. Let's do it. Paul says, I know you won't do it. 
So then Paul utters these powerful words. I appeal to Caesar. The laws of Rome protected Roman citizens accused of capital offenses by provisional administrators. At this point, the kingdom of Rome was, was set out and it was spread out. They had provisional leaders and the Senate of Rome recognized there might be a corrupt leader way out, out of town. You might get some crazy sheriff out there that isn't about justice, just about power. You might get a leader that has a position but doesn't have the courage and strength to do what's right. So the Roman system set up, if you're guilty, if you're being accused of a capital offense, you as a citizen have the right, if you're a Roman citizen, to appeal to Caesar, to go to Caesar's court and have him judge you. Paul recognizing this leader here doesn't have any courage or strength to do what he knows is best. Paul says, I claim on my citizenship. I want to go to Caesar. I love Festus' response. Look at verse 12. Then, in the Greek, right after that, Festus conferred with his council. That's Bible talk for, oh shoot. Conferred to his cancel, he answered, okay, you appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. So what's the problem, Brian? Here's the problem. Festus doesn't have any charges to put against Paul. Paul says, fine, I want to go to Caesar. And Festus says, okay, you're going to go to Caesar, but I don't know what I'm going to tell him. I don't know what you're guilty of. I don't have anything to say. And that's what brings us to the second point, not only another trial, but another leader. Verse 13, and I love it. I love the Bible. Because in English, it, verse 13 starts now when several days had elapsed. In the Greek, it's just like, hey, it just happened to happen. But in the Greek, it's like, hey, hey, hey. God's at work. Paul's stuck in this system. Festus is a coward and can't really make any sort of decision. It just happened to be, wink, wink, that there's another leader. It just happened. After several days had elapsed, King Agrippa arrived at Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus. We're supposed to be reading this and thinking, man, it's almost as if God's wanting him to share his testimony with all of these leaders. It's almost as if God is orchestrating all of this to get Paul to share his faith with every single government official possible. That got me to thinking, isn't that even what was said about Paul at his conversion? You remember this? Look at what Acts chapter nine. God's talking to Ananias, the disciple, says this, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, speaking of Paul, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. Hey, I'm saving Paul. He's going to go and bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and leaders as if God's had this plan. 
It's unfair to Paul. There's false accusations. He's being mistreated, but it's almost as if God is orchestrating this to bring Paul in front of all of these key leaders. Jewish leaders, Gentile leaders, Felix, now Festus, now King Agrippa. By the way, King Agrippa is the great-grandson of the Herod who killed all those babies during the time that Jesus was born. You remember that? Great-grandson of that guy. He's also the son of the Herod who killed the Apostle James. Remember that? And was wanting to kill the Apostle Peter? Acts has been a long time. So I want you to put your thumb again in Acts chapter 25, and let's flip over to Acts chapter 12. Let me remind you that Acts chapter 12, King Agrippa, this is his dad. This is who raised him. Acts chapter 12, verse 1, now about that time Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them, like he just wanted to persecute them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Look at verse 3. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering the four squads of soldiers to guard him. You remember that? No way Peter's getting out, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. Verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison. Big biblical, big, biblical butt right there. But... Just when you think Peter's cooked, look at this. But prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God. Remember when we talked about that? You have all this mistreatment. You have all this false accusation. James is already killed. Peter's on the chopping block, literally. What's the church do? They pray. Scripture seems to lead us that as a result of their prayer, God sends an angel Freeze Peter. Peter shows up at the prayer meeting. Remember that? People are praying to God about Peter. God moves. Peter shows up at the prayer meeting. People don't know what to do with it. We're talking about how we love to pray, but we don't expect God to do things. At that point, I invited you to a monthly prayer meeting with me. First, first Monday of every month. First Monday of every month, we gather to pray. I want to invite you again. By the way, it's not tomorrow. It's a week from tomorrow. I want to invite you. Come 7 o'clock. We pray. There's no music. There's no snacks. Sometimes there's not even heat. We just come in this room and pray. It takes an hour. We'll talk about the upcoming ministry of the church. Sure things going on in other churches that, I, that I'm, I know and I'm free to share. Talk about what's going on with our missionaries and leaders around the world. Sometimes we'll pray for you. Come and pray. I remember growing up at church, like the last thing I ever wanted to do is go to a prayer meeting. Oh, good heavens. And now as a pastor, one hour a month, just gather in here. 
If you're open to it, if you're bored, you're sitting at home wondering what can I do to serve the Lord, join me in prayer as we fervently ask God to act. Again, back to the text, you have this idea that God is at work in this. Things are unfair. We love to focus on the unfair treatment. We love to focus on the suffering of Paul. We love to focus on all the false accusations and how unfair, but we don't notice what God is doing in the midst of it. God is at work. Now all of a sudden, King Agrippa, the descendant of people that have been against Jesus and the work of Jesus from the beginning, his great-grandpa, his father, and now King Agrippa is here. He's a descendant of some pretty rotten guys, the ruler of the regions right now that's going on, and he's a curator of the temple. He's in charge of the high priest. He's keeping an eye on the treasury. He's also seen as an expert in the Jewish religion. So Festus, when he's stuck at this spot of, I don't know what to do, I'm in trouble, all of a sudden God dangles King Agrippa out there. Festus says, I'm going to ask King Agrippa. Listen to what he says, verse 14. While they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. It's not my fault. I inherited this. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, those serious accusations asking for a sentence of condemnation. They say he's guilty of capital crimes. I answered them, it's not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meeting his accusers face to face. That's not exactly true, he's just lazy, but whatever. Verse 17, so after they had assembled here, I did not delay, but on the next day took my seat at the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought before me. Look at verse 18. When the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not as such crimes as I was expecting. Man, they were talking like this guy was Jeffrey Dahmer. Like he's a threat to Rome. He's going to blow up the capital. I mean, they're describing Paul like he's some menace to the world. Who is that? I was surprised. Like I wasn't, I I was expecting something big to happen. Verse 19, but there it is again, biblical blood. They simply had some points of disagreement with him about their religion, about a dead man named Jesus. Paul says he's alive. You want to know what all this is about, King Agrippa? They want Jesus dead. Paul says Jesus is alive. Being at a loss in how to investigate such matters, I'm just a Roman governor. How am I supposed to determine if Jesus is alive or dead? I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I sent him to Caesarea. Verse 22, then Agrippa said to Festus, I'd like to meet this man myself tomorrow. Festus said, you will hear him. And that's where we end the story for today. A whole other chapter of Paul being mistreated, falsely accused, government not doing what government's supposed to do, people in power that don't have the courage and the guts to do what's right. Even Festus is like, look, there's nothing here. So we wait. And we're left with the reminder, here's another leader 
mistreated by the world, falsely accused by the world, sometimes maybe feeling left hanging by God. But was he? And we have these questions. How is Paul just remaining sane next week? If you ever miss a Sunday, don't miss next Sunday. It was one of my favorite passages of Acts where Paul meets Agrippa and he gives this powerful testimony of the work of Christ and a powerful message on what our lives should be about today. I mean, Paul, after all of this, gives one of his best testimonies next week. How's he do it? What does Paul know that we don't know in the midst of all this mistreatment, in the midst of all these false accusations, in the midst of being stuck in this powerless position? How does he continue? What does Paul know? What does David know? What does Daniel know? What does Joseph know that we seem to forget? I want to share something Paul said in Colossians. I think speaks to what we should be doing when we feel like we're being mistreated. We feel like we're being falsely accused. We're not being treated fairly. Paul says this, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, focus on things above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Ever ask the question, what do I do when I live in kooky California? I feel powerless to make any sort of changes. I feel like Christians are falsely accused. I feel like Christians aren't treated with respect. I feel like my viewpoints aren't heard or listened to. What do I do? I feel like all the world's against me. What do I do? How do I keep going? Paul says, keep your eyes focused on things above. Where Christ sits in the seat of authority and power. And trust that when everything's said and done, when Christ is revealed, when everything is completed, you're going to be with him. I guess my question for you today is where do you need to lift your eyes? Where do you need to change your focus? Where do you need to turn your eyes up to heaven? I know some of you are fighting grave disease, fighting insurance, making horrific decisions. And maybe you feel powerless in your life. How do I proceed? How do I move forward in this spot in my life? Paul's answer, lift up your eyes. Focus on God. Some of you might be in an unfair home situation. Your spouse isn't treating you the right way. Your kids are going wacko. Maybe your grandkids are struggling and they're not listening to you. You feel like you're in this powerless situation. You don't have authority or any freedom or any opportunity or idea of how to move forward. And you're saying, Brian, I don't know how to proceed. What does God want me to do? The apostle Paul would say, lift your eyes. Change your focus. Don't focus on all the kookiness of this world. Change your perspective and start looking at what God is doing. Be a part of that. Some of you look at the future of life, future of culture. People are telling you persecution's coming. 
And you wonder, will I be able to be faithful? Will I be able to stand firm? If and when that time comes for you, what will you do? Paul's answer, turn your eyes to Jesus. Lift up your gaze, focus on what God is doing in the midst of this hard time. Or maybe you're here. Like Brian, I don't know Jesus. I'm alone, I'm powerless, I'm stuck. I wish I could have the faith of Paul. I wish I could have that peace that Paul describes, this peace that's beyond human comprehension. That even though you're powerless, facing false accusations, imprisoned for years for something you didn't do, yet you have this confidence and faith that God is at work. Man, if you want that, Paul's answer is the same for you. Turn your eyes towards Jesus. Fix your gaze on him. For he is seated in a place of authority and have confidence that God is at work. Where do you need to turn your eyes to Jesus today? I'm going to ask you to take a minute, bow your heads, close your eyes. I was talking to Tyler recently. You know, we're talking about what's our purpose on Sunday. You know, my purpose is that you have an opportunity to come here an hour, if the pastor talks long, maybe an hour and 20, where all the distractions melt away from the world. You don't have to worry about finances here. You don't have to worry about family here. You don't have to worry about culture here. This is where you come and hear from the Lord and respond to his voice. I think sometimes we don't take time to do that. So where do you need to focus your eyes on Jesus today. Maybe it's in relationships. Maybe it's with your family, your career, your culture, your heart. Just between you and the Lord. Just share your heart with him. Lift your eyes on Jesus. Shift your focus. Change your perspective. Allow the peace of God surpasses all human comprehension. Guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Go ahead and pray now and Tyler will lead us in a moment.